0: Defense Matters, a podcast about defense, technology, and the power of that movement. An Israel Defense production in association with IAI. Hello and welcome to Defense Matters, a new podcast about all matters of defense and why they matter. I'm your host, Aaron Heller, and I hope you're enjoying our journey as we delve into all matters of security, military, cyber technology, and so much more. It's a new podcast, so we'd like you all, if you could, to please click on that subscribe button and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We've been delving into a bunch of different things in recent episodes. You can catch up on that on our catalog. And today, we're going to focus on a bigger issue of the new Middle East versus our old Middle East that we're familiar with. There have been a lot of changes here uh, recently. And uh, on the one hand, we've had these new alliances that Israel's been forging with the UAE, with Bahrain, with Morocco, other nations— that some have sort of started talking about a new Middle Eastern in relations. Um, on the other hand, we have a lot of the same old things we've seen here in many, many recent rounds of violence. Rockets from Gaza, tensions in Jerusalem, in the old city, and uh, terrorism on the Israeli streets. So are we talking about a new Middle East, or is it the same old one that we know? And to discuss that today, I'm glad to be joined by Iran Etzion, a longtime mm-hmm. former uh foreign ministry official and former deputy head of israel's national security council today he's the ceo of raise it a digital public participation platform thanks for joining us glad to be here all right so let's get into what i was talking about in our introduction over here about the general idea of what we're talking about a couple years ago i wrote a column about how the progress in the middle east always felt like kind of like a hamster on a wheel they kept on going around and around and the more things change the more they say the same Is that still the case today? Are we seeing fundamental changes in the Middle East, or are we seeing just a wrinkle of the same old thing that we're familiar with? Um,
1: I think we're seeing very significant changes. But, you know, as always with geopolitics, a lot of it has to do with fundamentals that do stay the same. You know, states are still states. Uh, We have new non-state actors that are acting perhaps in new ways. Um, We have new means, certainly technologically and uh, social networks and uh, uh, other technological innovations that do have a significant impact. But the fundamentals of the Middle East as a geopolitical arena remain the same. Let's try and decipher what is changing in terms of long-term trends. One thing, obviously, or perhaps not so obviously, is the departure of the U.S., so the changing role of the U.S. This is not a new phenomenon. It actually began with the end of the uh, Iraq war, towards the end of the Iraq war, even under Bush, certainly under Obama, and then Trump was a continuation, and Biden is still yet a continuation, more than a change. In terms of the overall trend of the US, understanding that the Middle East, they, they need to cut their losses essentially in the Middle East, not to leave it completely, but to change their posture, obviously because of China, and the need to pivot to China, something that Obama invented, Trump pursued and Biden is try, was trying to pursue, and still is trying to pursue despite the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that's number one. Number two is the whole new energy situation. Again, to a large extent attributable to Obama and his energy independence agenda that essentially weaned the US off uh, uh, Middle East oil, made it an exporter of energy rather than importer of energy, and drastically changed the geopolitical landscape and actually allowed the departure, the, the set departure. These are the two uh, major events. The, the uh, third one was the long term, shall we say eventuality of the so-called Arab Spring when at least at the beginning there was a sense, 2011 and so on there was a sense of an upcoming change, kind of a bottom-up change, huge change in release, regime changes, we all remember that. But it very quickly in historical terms turned into something very different. And essentially the old regimes, to a large extent, generally speaking, were entrenched and are still entrenching. So the change is that they're now even perhaps more afraid from their own populations, but in terms of their own behavior and so on, it pretty much remained the same and perhaps even galvanized. That's kind of, I think, the the overall mm-hmm. big picture. So, uh, what does it mean for Israel from an let's let's say relatively narrow? Let well, me stop it at
0: you for a second yeah. because that's interesting what you're saying, especially mm-hmm. about the energy, because the conventional wisdom was always that all these Gulf states, UAE and by extension Saudi Arabia, we're getting close to Israel because of the Iran issue. That's still a major factor too, right? Everybody's afraid of Iran rather than Israel these days.
1: I was gonna get to that, and and yes, it is a factor, but uh, I I think in the the usual kind of conventional wisdom Israeli public discourse, there is uh, an exaggeration and an underestimation, an exaggeration uh, in the role that Israel plays in the actual real Iranian strategic agenda and an underestimation in terms of the actual agenda of the Gulfies. Uh, and what do I mean by that? What I mean is, is relatively simple, certainly for those you know, who are in within the professional circles of this and are not just uh, occasional listeners to, uh, uh, to mainstream media. Iran is a huge regional actor, always was, always will be. And if if you look at the overall trend, it is strengthening, despite the sanctions, despite the American and international campaign against its nuclear program, despite of everything. It has managed to very skillfully, intelligently, uh, galvanize and even enhance its its regional power. And for the Gulf countries, it is not a question of, um, certainly not changing the Iranian regime, as some in the U.S. and in Israel used to think, and some probably still think. They know it's a, you know, it's a complete fantasy. It's not going to happen. It's not within anybody's scope, not even the U.S., let alone any regional actor or coalition of actors, and, and they don't really aspire to do that. Rather, they understand that they need to live with Iran. If you want, you can even make an analogy to, uh, to, to COVID. You know? It's something bad that you need to live alongside of. It's not something that you can totally eliminate. There's no vaccine or anything like that. So they are engaged constantly with Iran. And as they are engaging more and more with Israel, and that's true and that is obviously a welcomed and important change, they are balancing what they're doing with Israel with their ongoing uh, negotiations with Iran. We just heard yesterday the Iraqi Prime Minister, I'm not sure how many of the listeners know that, but uh, Iraq has been playing host and mediator to very important negotiations between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia that has cut off diplomatic ties in 2016 and they now are on the verge of renewing it. Uh, virtually as the Gulfis are um, you know, uh, becoming closer and closer to Israel, including in very sensitive areas of missile defense and intelligence sharing and all of that, they are going to change, probably, and I'm saying it carefully because, you know, it's the Middle East and everything is volatile, but they're gonna change the nature of their relations with Iran, and will try to normalize them, uh, with or without an American agreement with Iran on the nuclear issue. So to, to, to simplify from the Gulfist perspective, and again, of course, there are differences, you know, it's uh, depending on the level of analysis you, you want to have, and we don't have enough time. But generally speaking about the Gulfists, they want to normalize relations with Iran. Sure, they see it as a threat, but they see it as a threat that they can and need to tackle in a variety of ways, not only militarily. They know that militarily, essentially, they cannot withstand Iran alone, and, and they have no illusions about that. For example, the economic ties between the UAE and Iran are extremely complex. And they were so throughout the the sanctions era with all sorts of legal and semi-legal and illegal operations taken by the UAE. So we need to avoid the black and white view that is so common in, in, uh, in mainstream media. As far as Israel is concerned, it means that those in Israel who still perhaps are cultivating any dreams of a regime change in Iran need to forget about it and forget about it quickly it's not feasible, not even to, to, to the U.S., certainly not uh, for, uh, for Israel. And in terms of the nuclear agreement, Israel needs to understand that there is no better alternative to a renewed JCPOA. There simply is no better alternative, not for Israel, not for the U.S., not for any of the regional partners. And most of them know that. Israel's policy in that regard, I think, is is mistaken.
0: Well, that's made a lot of interesting points. Let's talk about the big picture again, about all these new times, because a couple of years ago, if you would have asked him in Israel, oh, you're going to have kind of official relations with UAE, with Morocco, with Bahrain, uh, with Sudan even, and, mm-hmm. and, and these unofficial relations with Saudi Arabia. It would have seemed sort of like a pipe dream, but it actually happened. And we know that it can be tenuous. So what are the things that can really put that in jeopardy? Is it these relations you talk about with Iran? Is it, for example, what's happening in Ukraine, the Russian angle on that all? Or is it the original point you made about American foreign policy? Is the American retreating from the Middle East helping these or putting a hindrance on it?
1: There's one point that we neglected to to mention so far, not accidentally, which is the Palestinian issue. I was Um, going to get to that. Well, that's my next question. Yeah, I'm going to tie it into this question because I think the real difference between the so-called New Middle East of the Shimon Peres times and the New Middle East that we're seeing now is the extension, the the elimination, if you will, or the absence of the Palestinian issue in, in the equation, at least on the face of it. Because the whole idea of the Abraham Accords at least from the Israeli perspective, not necessarily, by the way, from the American perspective, but certainly from the Israeli perspective, was to marginalize even further the uh, uh, Palestinian issue and to demonstrate, and this for Netanyahu is a huge achievement because he's been talking about it essentially since he entered politics in the, in the mid-'90s, that you know, it's all about peace for peace, there's no need to pay with territory, there's no, no need to pay with quote-unquote Israeli or Palestinian currency. We can do regional, regionalized peace and the new Middle East without the Palestinians without touching the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And uh, he proved to be right, at least in the short term. And what we're seeing now, and you alluded to that, I think, in, in some of your uh, opening remarks, is that there is, um, an, again, on the face of it, if you, if you look at it superfici- superficially, yes, there is a new Middle East without the Palestinians. The Palestinians have been once again thrown under the wheels of the historical bus. They have, there's nothing they can do about it. Yes, they can shoot from Gaza here and there, but we can handle it. West Bank by and large is quiet. Yes, we have those waves of terror, some of them smaller, some of them higher, but we can obviously deal with those and we can go ahead and forge our relations with uh, with the Gulf and with, uh, as you say, Sudan and other Arab countries, Morocco, well, and, and the things question, are great.
0: Because I, I, I wrote it down I, here as like the elephant in the room, so to speak, the Palestinians. Yeah. In it. Uh, has this recent bout of violence been their way of basically saying that these shootings in Tel Aviv, all the stuff that's going on Temple Mount, is that them raising their hand saying, hey, don't forget about me. And do they have the potential to disrupt this? I mean, is this something which, if you do have another quasi intifada, the UAE can say, we're out of the game?
1: Again, it's very hard to, to give you a, a short and direct answer because there is no such thing as the Palestinians. You have such huge differences within the Palestinian uh, geopolitical ar- arenas between Gaza and the West Bank, within Gaza, within the West Bank, Palestinians abroad, and so on and so forth. But again, trying to simplify and speak in in generalized terms, um, I think we are in a transitional period when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and when it comes to the Palestinians themselves. We're in a transitional period between the Oslo era and a post-Oslo era. Even though Oslo has not been annulled by any of the actors, nor I suspect will it be officially. The Abraham Accords and the so-called Trump Plan were actually a scheme to eliminate the Oslo Accords, which is the real uh, Netanyahu, which which was again the Netanyahu strategy from very early on, from the early 90s. And in his book, which he will write either from prison or from a a tax haven somewhere, or I don't know from where, he will probably uh, highlight this. And he's right. People who say that Netanyahu uh, was not a strategist are completely wrong. He was, he, he was, he is a brilliant strategist, and he achieved a lot. He achieved a lot from his, his perspective regarding the Iranian uh, nuclear issue. He achieved a lot from his perspective regarding the elimination of the Oslo Accords, de facto elimination, and the erosion to the, to the verge of elimination of the two-state solution. Uh, so we are kind of in a transitional period in, in that sense. And nobody knows, obviously, what will be after. But in terms of the way that the Palestinian arena is organizing itself, politically, militarily, and so on, n- narratively, if you will, Um, It's all it's already kind of a post Oslo era and as you know the one staters are on the rise either from the Islamist side or from the other extreme of the, the far left of the Palestinians the Palestinian Authority as an entity is Shaking Abu Mazen is you know, it's only a question of Probably a very short time and he will no longer be present and there's a huge question of succession so the Palestinian issue is kind of uh, suspended in, uh, in, in thin air, if you will, and it's not going to last very long. And what we're seeing now is just some very, very small manifestations of, of, of this basic strategic fact. Yeah, that's very interesting because once when we talk about the new middle east the first time they mentioned that
0: expression was attributed to shimon paris and that was about how it was focused around the palestinians and He used to have dreams of visiting in, in doha he used to even wrote a poem about that and so that was about you know Qatar will come in because of palestinians now we even see seeing the complete opposite which is that israel's talking about you know Qatar without the Palestinians. So it seems like eventually it's not gonna be either completely no Palestinians or completely yes Palestinians, but some kind of hybrid in the middle. I mean, like it it can't be completely ignored.
1: You know, I think even the way that we are framing this issue is, is problematic, because no matter what happens regionally, no matter what happens with Iran, we are quote unquote stuck with the Palestinians. Um, And there's nothing that can happen on these kind of outer perimeters geopolitically of of the region, the other side of the River Jordan, if you will, um, that will allow us to escape dealing seriously, strategically with the Palestinian issue. And simply to um, crash, smash the uh, last serious attempt that was made, which was Oslo, which again was Netanyahu's strategy, which was successfully implemented. Simply to, to crash it is okay but what are you actually building in its stead? And the Abraham Accords, even though strategically was, were an attempt to kind of override this issue, I think will not succeed in, in that respect. And as I said, we are stuck with the Palestinian issue. There needs to be completely new Israeli thinking. There needs to be, uh, I think, new Israeli leadership that will be uh, willing to seriously handle it rather than try to shove it under the, under the carpet, which essentially is a, Kind of the bedrock of this uh, uh, quote-unquote change government or government of change. Um, so again, even both in terms of Israeli of, of Palestinian politics and in terms of Israeli politics, we're in a transitional period. And after that, and I personally hope that as soon as possible, there will be new thinking on the Palestinian issue because uh, it's it's inescapable. Right. Well, thank you. We covered
0: a lot of ground. There's a lot more we could have gone to, but we're out of time. So thank you again. Uh, Iran, uh, for joining us. We'll be right back for our next corner, the Game Changer corner, which we talk about the technology of the future and how it affects tomorrow's battlefield. We'll be right back. Break, break, break. Welcome back. We're back with our Game Changer section, which we talk about how the technologies of the future can affect the battlefield of tomorrow. And I'm glad that we're joined today by Nir Gil from IA- IAI's ELTA group. And we're here to discuss today data science. Thanks for joining us.
2: Nice meeting you.
0: All right, so data science, we all know about that. There's, there's so much information in the world. We talk about that technology, about big data and how you decipher it and you extract it. How does this work in the world of intelligence? How do you take all of this huge data that's out there and translate it into something that's actual meaningful intelligence?
2: Yeah, so maybe before we discuss how we do it, uh, maybe it's important to understand why we do it. In, in the last few decades, we witnessed uh, an overflow of data from uh, multiple uh, sensors from space to, uh, to drones. All this data is coming in and is available for commanders. Um, and then we have the problem of uh, data overflow. Too much data, too less information. So the challenge is how to, how to turn all this data into meaningful and actionable intelligence that can influence commander's decisions and actions on the battlefield.
0: So can you give us an example of the technology behind this? Because, you know, now it's something like you said in the past, there wasn't enough maybe data. Now there's so much. How do you take all this stuff, everything being all the cameras, all the sensors everywhere, and how do you translate that to something which you can use in the battlefield?
2: So maybe maybe we can we can say um, why, why IAI uh, is investing in these fields. II is a producer, a developer, and producer of sensors and intelligence systems and intelligence platforms. So we cover the entire array or the entire value chain of intelligence from sensor to the field. And this is why it's so important to us because we want
0: to bring added value uh, with our systems. This is why we do it. Mm-hmm so what is it besides sensors besides drones what are we talking about here
2: so in this talk we we emphasize um the data science uh what how we deal with this with the data how we extract the data how we structure the data how we uh how we do data association and how we package the data in order to deliver it in the most effective way to the commander on the field
0: I think everybody familiar probably through Google and other places about data extraction and about taking you know mass information algorithms etc is that pretty much the same kind of thing we're talking about here or is there a different elements when it comes to the world of security and military beyond just like with Google and other big
2: that's an excellent point an excellent question because uh, basically we're trying to do the same uh, the big difference between civilian technologies and military tex- technologies in the in the civilian world, we control the entire value chain. We know where the data comes from, what is the reliability of data, and how to combine it and what the customer needs. In each case, uh, you can can imagine many applications that we use on our iPhone uh, that operate in this way. In In the military domain, it's completely different because much of the data is unstructured. So to begin with, we have a very big challenge.
0: So this is obviously a very hot topic. A lot of people are dealing with this. What's the added, I guess, advantage you guys have in this area of data science?
2: Yeah, so AI is, um, as I said, controls the entire um, chain value of, uh, of intelligence. We develop sensors. We do the intelligence systems, the intelligence platforms and we deliver them to our customers so so first of all we have an intimate understanding of how the sensors work and this is a key factor for doing data science the second advantage is that many of uh, the experts that work in iai are former um, idf uh, uh, people that has Extensive operational understanding of the needs of the customers. And the third advantage is our platform. We have developed a platform, uh, its name is Starlight, which is a dedicated platform uh, to produce uh, actionable intelligence. And that platform includes all the algorithms and engines and applications that. Provide the commander on the battlefield to perform uh, the intelligence uh, task uh, From start to end.
0: Well, I hope that we took all the data you talked about here and managed to synthesize it into something understandable for Everyone watching us and that does it for this episode of defense matters it was episode three You can see our entire archive wherever you get your podcast. So please subscribe and follow us there. Until next time, I'm Aaron Harless saying goodbye, we'll see you next time on Defense Matters.